0: James chapter number two tonight, James chapter number two, I want to preach to you from a very familiar passage of scripture, uh, but I trust God will use it in your heart and mind. It's it's the passage I had on my heart this morning, and uh, I want to share it with you tonight. James chapter two, we'll begin reading in verse number 14, James chapter two, verse number 14, the Bible says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, And he was called the friend of God. Ye ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the word of God. Bless it to our hearts and speak to us tonight that which would be most pleasing in your sight. Lord, we have need to hear from you. Uh, we didn't just come here uh, out of form or function or formality, but we came, Lord, because we need you. We need to hear from heaven. We need you to work in our hearts and in our minds. So help us to receive the word of God as it's preached to us tonight and help us, Lord, to believe on you and to respond to you. And we'll be sure to thank you for what takes place. Lord, I love you and I commit this service to you and I ask it in Christ's name, amen. I want to preach to you tonight on this thought, practical faith practical faith. James chapter number 2 deals at length with this topic of what it means for our faith in the Lord to become practical in our everyday lives. But before I get into the, the heart of our message, There's a few passages I want to read for you because this passage, our text tonight, James chapter two, has been used, I think, to communicate some wrong ideas and some unbiblical things in the world at large. And I think that's a shame, you know, every time that we have the wrong understanding of the word of God, we have also missed the right understanding of the word of God. One of the great tragedies about learning Scripture wrong is not just that you learned something wrong, but that you did not learn what was right and you've missed what God is trying to teach you. And so there's a few verses I'd read just to establish some things right out the gate. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine says this, for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3.5 says that it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Second, Timothy 1.9 speaks of the Lord who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Do you notice a theme we're picking up on? Our salvation is not of our works, but it is of His mercy, it is of His grace, and it is accessed by our faith in Him. Romans chapter 11, it's talking about a faithful remnant that God uh, has preserved of, of Israel, but it also establishes a principle in regards to how grace and works uh, interact or the lack thereof it says in Romans 11:6 that if what God's done if it's by grace then it is then is it no more of works Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace? Otherwise, work is no more work. Now, I've read all of those to establish this basic sound biblical principle that I think everybody here on a Wednesday night at Walridge Baptist Church already knows. But before we dive into Scripture, I just want to establish as a baseline that the Bible is abundantly clear that the salvation of a of a person, meaning their their righteousness being imputed unto them or the righteousness of Christ being imputed, imputed unto them, and them being saved and birthed into the family of God is based on the criteria of the finished work of Christ, the grace of God, that it is accessed by our faith and that it in no way is informed or is solidified or secured by our works which we do. Now, I believe that God wrote the whole Bible. Amen? Not just a verse here and there. I believe He wrote the whole Bible. And so I believe that uh, we can't out-Bible the Bible with other Bible but rather we ought to seek to understand what the Bible says. And I don't think that anything that James says in James chapter number two contradicts any of the verses that we've read. Not because necessarily the penman of the Bible always necessarily had always the same perspective about everything in life, but because we know that they may have been the penman, but the Holy Spirit of God was the author of the Word of God and that it is all in perfect and entire agreement with each other. So we've established this basic foundation that our salvation is by grace through faith. It's not by works. And yet the Bible is abundantly clear that that though faith is the means through which we uh, access God and the means through which we obtain salvation through him, we place our faith in him, that uh, our faith is not something that should cease at the point of our getting saved. It should not be the ending of our faith, but the beginning of our faith and a life of faith That is, lived with God. Romans chapter 14, verse 23, tells us that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Meaning that in our life, the things that we do through intuition or leaning upon the flesh do not please God. But the things we do in response to his word by faith, those are the things that please God. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says uh, very plainly, we walk by faith and not by sight. And then four times in your Bible, once in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk two four, and then also in Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11 and Hebrews 10.38, we're told that the just shall live by faith or by his faith. So you say, preacher, what are you getting at? Well, I'm wanting to establish two truths that exist at the same time in the Bible. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ by the grace of God, by His mercy. No works that we do in any way, shape, fashion, and form secure or earn or accomplish that salvation. However, our faith is not something that ends when we believe on Christ. It begins when we believe on Christ. And the the moment of salvation is the beginning of a walk of faith that should extend and continue throughout the rest of our life. And so we find that faith is a prevailing principle in the life of believers. If you're not living by faith, you're doing something wrong. If you're not living by faith, your Christianity is not functioning the way that God has intended for it to. Uh, You've heard me say this a lot, but I'll echo it again tonight before I move on. We as Christians sometimes, when God puts us in a situation that requires faith, we think something broke down about our Christianity. But the opposite is actually, uh, you know, what's true. When we are walking by faith, that's not a malfunction of our Christianity. That is a normal function of our Christianity. We should have to walk by faith. And what does it suggest of our Christianity if we have so gained the system? Let's just say it that way, that we figured out a way to live Christianity without needing Christ, that we figured out a way how to be faithful without faith, that we figured out a way how to serve without having to stay close to him and live and walk by faith. And so there are three statements I would make before I get into the preaching tonight. The first is this faith is proper for the life of the believer. It is appropriate for us to both have faith and need faith in our Christian walk. But faith is only proper if it's also practical. You see, faith that is theoretical is not the will of God for us. Faith that is abstract is not the will of God for us. Biblical faith is not something that just lives within a theological textbook. Biblical faith is something that lives and breathes in our life. Faith is proper, but only if it's practical. Then number two, I would say this faith is profitable, but only if it's practical. I always sort of laugh every we're coming into uh, what used to be known as election seasons. I don't know what we're going to call them now here going forward, but selection seasons, um, whatever this is that I guess whatever weird rote political, you know, drama we're getting ready to live out over the next year and call it an election, Uh, you know, but every every uh, few years at election season, uh, all of a sudden people become people of faith. And every politician that has supported the murdering of unborn children, the mutilation of confused young people, uh, degenerate sodomite lifestyle, and the utter just corruption and corrosion of our society, all of a sudden they're people of faith. Uh, They'll tell you that in their commercials and in their emails and in the uh, propaganda leaflets that they mail to your house that they are people of faith. And we begin to ask ourselves, well, what exactly does that even mean to be a person of faith? Their faith has obviously not changed or guided them. So why is it that their faith is so unprofitable? Well, for this reason, it's not practical. It's, it's political. It's not practical. It's convenient and expedient, but it's not practical. And so faith is profitable in your life. You'll be benefited by walking by faith and living by faith, but only if it is practical faith. Only if that faith is meaningful enough that it changes the way that you behave. And then I would say this, that faith is powerful. The Bible on on many occasions speaks... About the power of faith. How that faith can literally move mountains. How that faith can shift and and reshape the world around us. How that that faith has the ability to break the laws of physics. Faith has the ability to bring to naught the things that are. And, And faith has this remarkable power, but only if it's practical. See, here's part of what we struggle with. Sometimes the practical response of faith is waiting. And we begin to think that that faith is no longer practical. There are times your faith is going to prompt you to move. And there's times your faith is going to prompt you to wait. But whether that faith is prompting you to move or to wait, if it is you exercising dependence upon God's Word and allowing faith to govern your life or to be the active principle of your life, then that faith is practical even if it's not in motion at that moment. And so faith is powerful, but only if it's practical. And that's what James is dealing with here in James chapter number two. He's dealing with practical faith. And I want you to notice three thoughts and then we'll be done tonight. Notice in verses 14 through 17. Let's read it together. The Bible says, what doth it profit my brethren? Though a man say he hath faith and have not works. Here's the question. Can faith save him? Then James gives an illustration. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. James first speaks of faith's practice. Now, I want you notice the supposition of this truth that he has in verse 14. Can faith save him? A faith that does not have works, does it have the capacity or ability to save him? Now, here's the question we must immediately ask if we're going to be honest students of the Bible. What does James mean when he says save him? We've already established within, without any debate or any dispute or any, any doubt that the salvation of the soul, meaning being birthed into the family of God and becoming a child of God, is something that is in no way connected with or based upon our works. But you know, that word save has a lot of different meanings. Uh, We're getting ready to have this cookout, and and I... I don't know, man. When it's chili cook-off time, chili cook-off is my favorite. When it's soup, you know, stews, chowders, and chilies, then soup, stews, chowders, and chilies is my favorite. When, it, when it's cookout time, cookout time is my favorite. I just like to eat, amen? And uh, But I, I do, I love this cookout thing that we're doing. and we got all kinds of good food that uh, is coming up. But, you know, one of the things about being a pastor, isn't always the case, but a lot of times, especially if I have to preach afterwards, you know, I can't really eat. The way that God designed me to eat, you know, I mean, I don't know if you realize this, but I've only got a few talents. They're rare, but but eating's one of them. I mean, I'm good at it. And uh, one of the hard things whenever we have these dinners like this and stuff's like, man, I can't I can't just tuck in the way that I that I really wish that I could. And so a lot of times I'll tell my wife, I'll say, well, hey, make sure you save me one of those. Whatever it might be, make sure you save me one of those. Honey, this isn't just preaching. I'm giving you it. I'm leading my home right now. Save me some of what we have on Sunday. Uh, and so sometimes when you say we'll save something, you can mean to hold something back or to keep it in reserve. Sometimes when you say save, you mean to rescue something. Sometimes uh, when you say save, it can mean to to protect or to shield something. And so the question immediately has to be asked, what kind of salvation is James talking about? Well, he shows us in verse number 15 because he gives us an illustration. The illustration is of someone that is in physical bodily harm. And so it would not be inappropriate to say that the salvation that James is speaking of, while not necessarily limited to physical bodily threats, he's obviously not speaking in the context of the salvation of a person's soul. I'll go on to show you later on in the message that none of these examples that are given, abraham spoken of, Rahab is spoken of, in none of those contexts are, are they being spoken of in regards to the salvation of their soul. And so this is always dealing with the idea of the rescuing of a person's situation. And the question then becomes this. James is essentially saying, does faith without any practical output have any benefit in a person's life? He says it this way. What doth it profit? What good is it? We see this supposition of this truth. Can faith save him or does it have any any profit if it's not practiced? And then he gives the illustration of this truth in verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food and one of you say unto them, and by the way, it's interesting that he says a brother or sister, he's obviously speaking about saved individuals here. And so he's also not speaking about you saving someone by proxy, by your good works, because these people are already saved. That's just the Holy Ghost just seeing to the to the the eyes and the t's there. But it says, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food and one of you say unto them, depart. In peace, be ye warmed and filled. I mean, that right there sounds exactly like the language you'll find in any number of charismatic Church of God Pentecostal services that you tune into online, or or, or a tent meeting, or whatever it might be. Speaking a truth. Into existence would be how they would describe it. They would call it speaking a word of faith. That's how they would say it. Or verbalizing something into existence. Well, that's what the person does here in James 2.16. He verbalizes. He speaks a word of faith. He says, I am believing this for you. And I am trusting this for you. And I am expecting this for you. Then it says this, notwithstanding. You give them not those things which are needful to the body. This is what the Holy Ghost said. What doth it profit? In other words, he says that faith, however sincere it may be, however well-meaning it may be, is of no practical import to that person who is struggling, who is naked, who is destitute of food, who is cold, who is exposed to the elements if it is not put into action by practical behavior. Now... We could take this as a thesis for, uh, you know, all manner of humanitarian work and so on and so forth. It's really not what James means by it. He's not saying that, you know, we're not good Christians if we don't pass out bottles of water and backpacks and coats and things like that. I'm not against doing any of those things, but he is giving an illustration here. And he is saying, however well meaning that person's faith may be, it does not reach out and touch the world around them until they put it into action. I would say it this way: for far too long, we have allowed, uh, even in good, solid Bible-believing churches, we have allowed our faith to degrade into the speculative and into the theoretical. We, we viewed ourselves as as the custodians of 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 certain you know, doctrinal integrity. And listen, I'm for doctrinal integrity. I think we can be, I think we can be both righteous and right in, in what we believe and in what we do. And I'm not advocating that we loosen doctrinal standards. But we have viewed it and said, well, that's enough. As long as we're right, it doesn't matter if we're lazy. As long as we're right, it doesn't matter if we're apathetic. As long as we're right, it doesn't matter if we're idle. And what James says here flies directly in the face of that attitude. You can be right. You can have all of your doctrine sorted out. And uh, Leonard Ravenhill used to say you can have doctrine straight as a gun barrel and just as hollow. You can have all of the the T's crossed and the I's dotted. You can have all of the sort of doctrinal perspective tucked away and, and, and organized and compartmentalized in the appropriate perspectives. And that's good. I advocate that. I'm for that. But if that doesn't change the way that you live, here's what the Holy Ghost says. What good is? it? What good is? it? What has happened in our lives that we have allowed this to take place? Notice the application of this truth. Verse 17, he says this, even so faith if it hath not works, is dead being alone. In other words, he says it is of no good if it is not practiced. One of the uh, terminologies that you hear often in society, and, you know, most of the time when society talks about religion and Christianity, most of the time they get everything wrong that there is to get wrong about it. But one of the things that you'll often hear people say, and I do believe there is some benefit to this turn of phrase, they'll talk about practicing your faith. And I will tell you that uh, certainly uh, our relationship with God is not predicated on our diligence or devotion in terms of living for him. And man, I'm thankful for that because I sure wouldn't get in and you wouldn't either. But there is something to be said for putting our faith into practice. And that's what James says here. He says that it's not the will of God that we just live in a speculative form of faith, that our faith live only in our dogma, only in our theological worldview and never reach out and touch the world around us. He speaks of faith's practice in verses 14 through 17. Then notice verses 18 through 20. And you'll notice each of these sort of divide into a section with this same thought in verses 17 and in verse 20 and down in verse 26 about faith without works being dead. Well, he says in verse 18, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith, by my works. Then he says this, thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is death? So in verse 17 or in verse number 14 down to verse 17, he speaks of faith's practice. But in verses 18 through 20, he speaks of faith's proof. And notice in verse 18, he speaks of the evidence of practical faith. Now, if we're not careful, we'll read this and not get what he's saying here. So let's read it again slow. A man may say, thou hast faith. And I have works. Now, it's reasonable to suppose that the person that has works is also saying I have faith that have energized those works. So he's not saying I don't believe God but I do good things and you believe God but you don't do good things. But what he is saying is if I want to see your faith in your life without works, there is no means for me to see it. He says, show me thy faith without thy works. Boy, we could stop there and preach on that for just hours. Show me thy faith without thy works. Think of all the ways in which we endeavor to show the world that we believe in Christ while avoiding working for Jesus Christ. Think about all the things we do. And listen, there's a lot of things that I'm for, but we've just allowed them to become proxies for other important truths. Listen, I'm for going to the house of God. The Bible commands us, forsake not the assembly of ourselves together. But I wonder how often that we've trusted the testimony of our leaving to go to work to be a witness to our neighbors instead of simply going over and asking them if they know Jesus Christ. I'm for standards. Yeah, man, I the, me and my wife we had to go out and do some shopping yesterday and and society's just a cesspool. I mean, it's just bad like I just, you can't go anywhere, everywhere you go, everything's just, we don't even have a society anymore. When people start going to grocery stores in their pajamas and their underwear, we don't have a society anymore and we go up and down the aisles and just you know grieved and just bothered and a little sick to our stomach and you know at just how wicked and wretched and and uh, and vile society is and uh, i'm not the one that's bad my wife she gets more upset than i do at it and uh, but you know we we had to, i don't even know where i was going with that sorry man i just had flashbacks i had a moment i remembered and and it it, it was bad And we we live in this degenerate society around us. And, you know, very often when, when we look at the world around us, we'll say, well, you know, my testimony, I was going to talk about standards, what I was going to talk about. I'm for standards. We need standards. We need more standards. We need better standards. We need tighter standards. But how often have we said my standards will be what I do for Jesus Christ instead of living for him? How many things have we allowed to become the proxy for our faith finding practical expression? Listen, I'm for standards. I'm for being faithful to church. I'm for doctrinal integrity. I hope you believe right. Part of what I do as a pastor is helping to teach you what is right in the word of God and helping you to a right understanding of Scripture. And I think that's appropriate. But how many of those things have we allowed to become proxies So that we can say, see, I have faith instead of men just being able to look at a life lived for Christ and be able to tell that we have faith. You see, we go through great, uh, great endeavors and, 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 and take great measures and go to great lengths to try to find a way to show the world our faith without our works. There's a simpler way. Here's what the man says in verse 18. I will show thee my faith by my works. Now, notice he does not say I will show you my salvation by my works. He does not say, I will show you my relationship with God by my works, because the reality is there's a great many people that are saved by the grace of God. And really, you couldn't tell much of it from their life. But here's what he does say. My faith, you'll be able to see and tell that I believe God, that I trust God, that I believe he's right, that I believe his word is right, because I'm going to live in a way that's in accordance with it. I see the evidence of practical faith. And somebody will say, well, preacher, you know, faith's a personal thing. I just got what I believe about God and that's enough. I don't have to live it all loud before the world. Well, listen to what James says about that in verse 19. He says, thou believest that there is one God. That's pretty good. That's not a bad thing. We should believe there's one God, right? You okay on a Wednesday night? Y'all having Walmart flashbacks too. That's what's happening. My soul. Shana works there. She's at ground zero. Look at her. She's, she, she has to see it every day. Yeah, it's rough. I know. All right. Let's try it again now. Thou believest that there is one God. That's pretty good, right? We should believe there is one God. James says, thou doest well. That's a good thing. That's a good affirmative theological doctrinal statement. Well, I believe there is one God. In three persons in the Trinity, as the Bible describes it, I believe that. That's good. Then he says this, the devils also believe and tremble. In other words, he speaks not only of the evidence of practical faith, but of the impotence of theoretical faith. He says this, it's impossible to believe right in a doctrinal sense without allowing it to move you. So I don't think his, his purpose and 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 you know I'm not against it. I've heard preachers talk about devilish faith and, and 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 talk about the idea of a person not really being saved but having a head knowledge and and certainly there are people that just have a head lot knowledge and they've never believed on Jesus Christ but I don't really think that's the point behind what James is saying here I think what he's trying to get us to understand is that it is indeed possible to have a speculative faith in God that is real, that is genuine, that is sincere, that is in doctrinal accordance with Scripture, but compartmentalize it away from ever allowing it to affect the way that we live. So preacher, is that possible? Yeah. Churches in East Tennessee and really all over America are filled with people like that. They believe right. They do. They know what's right. If you were to give them a quiz, they'd pass it. But it never, it never causes them to go out and witness to anyone, never cause them to live in a righteous manner. They never look at their lives and say, am I growing closer to Christ? Am I living for Him? Am I walking with Him? They have a speculative faith Amen. and nothing more. Hey man, I've been guilty of it. I bet you probably have too, sooner or later, at some point in your life. Uh, and, and we sit back and we say, well yeah, but I believe right. Yeah, but is your believing right producing behavior that's right Amen. in our lives? If it's not, then here's what the Holy Ghost would say. What profit is? What profit is? I want you to see not only faith's proof and and the proof of our faith in God is, is that it moves our behavior. It causes us to live and behave in a certain way. And by the way, I do believe when a person gets saved, there'll be evidence of that in their life. Sometimes it's in the change and sometimes it's in the chastening. But of course, there's evidence But that's not what James is talking about here. He's speaking of how a person can say, yes, I believe God and I believe he's right and I believe the word of God is right. But if it's not changing the way that he lives, then that is without works. It is alone. It is dead. It is meaningless. It has no impact. So we see faith's practice and we see faith's proof. And finally, I want you to notice faith's perfection. Look with me at verse 21. The Bible says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect? Verse number 23 is important. It's the key to this whole passage. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now, to understand this passage of scripture, it's important to know a little bit about the life of Abraham. Because the way this reads, if a person was not acquainted with Abraham's life, they would think that James is speaking about one event that transpired in Abraham's life. And he's not. He's actually speaking about two separate events that were separated by decades. The Bible says in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. That was when God had... Uh, commanded Abraham to give the sacrifice and Abraham he went and and it, it wasn't just a sacrifice like a like a normal burnt offering but it was the manner and means through which two people would enter into a covenant with each other and he went and he 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 slayed the sacrifice and what they would do is they would take and, and cut it in two and they put half of it over here and half of it over here and then the two people entering into the covenant they would walk hand in hand up and down between those those pieces and they would recite whatever their covenant or promise or pledge was to each other, and it was a solemn, sacred means of entering into a covenant with each other. The Bible describes how that after Abraham had prepared that sacrifice so that he was invested in it, so that he was included in it, God put him under a horror of darkness and put him to sleep and how that when he woke up, he saw a a smoking lamp and a burning furnace floating, traveling down in between those two halves of the sacrifice. The Bible describes that same event in Hebrews chapter number 10, that when God could swear by no greater, he swear by himself, saying, in blessing I will bless thee, uh, and, and uh, talked about how that, that, that was so that Abraham might have a sure anchor and a refuge for his soul by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. In other words, God made a covenant with himself. When God makes covenant with himself, when God makes a promise to himself, there's no, there's no third party to break that covenant. Uh, there, there's no third party to, to foul it up and to mess it up. This was the terms under which God imputed unto Abraham righteousness. And It wasn't through Abraham's works, it was through his faith. If you don't believe that, read book Romans chapter 4 that talks in great detail about both Abraham and David, how that by faith they were justified and not by works. But the Bible does say this, the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And notice this last phrase, and he was called the friend of God. In other words, faith being active in Abraham's life did not cease or end at the moment that he believed God. It began then. And the culmination or the realization of that, or let's use a good Bible word, the perfection of that. The maturing of that was brought to pass when he offered Isaac upon Mount Moriah. Now, Abraham was saved, if we want to use a good New Testament term. He had righteousness imputed unto him. He was secure. He was sealed. He had believed on the Lord uh, in Genesis chapter number 15. But the fruit of his faith and walk with God was not brought and made manifest until we get to Genesis chapter number 22. So here's what James is talking about. He's talking about faith's perfection or what God has in mind or what his desire is for faith in the life of the believer. And notice three things. Number one, faith was perfected. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now what does he mean by the word justified? We think of the term justified and we think of it very similar to the term salvation of having righteousness imputed unto But Abraham had righteousness imputed in Genesis 15. Yet James says he was justified in Genesis chapter 22. So evidently the sense in which James uses the term justified is not in the sense of our justification with God. But it's in the more familiar context of the term justified for a person to be vindicated. You ever heard somebody say, well, I felt real justified when that happened. Or I said this was going to happen and it did and, and I felt justified. In other words, it brought to light or brought to bear something that a person had said or thought. And when it says he was justified by works, it doesn't mean he became righteous. He already had righteousness imputed unto him. But it means that that righteousness was made manifested and shown to the world through his obedience to God and faith in him. By the way, let me just mention as well that the substance of the sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah didn't have to do with works in the first place. Well, I understand it was a work of obedience, but that entire passage is centered not around Abraham's works, but around his faith. That he believed that if he gave Isaac as a sacrifice, Hebrews says that God would have to raise him from the dead. He accounted that God was able to raise him from the dead whence he had received him in a figure. The entire passage is about faith. What he's saying here is this, that faith, when it's doing what God designed it to do, it's working. My preacher used to say it this way. I don't believe in faith and works, but I believe in a faith that works. And part of the reason that we serve and obey the Lord, not because he's going to snatch our salvation back away from us if we don't, but because it's only right and appropriate that he saved us. And he didn't just save us from something, he saved us to something. And he didn't just save us so we aren't what we used to be. He saved us so we could be something we could have never been Without him, faith was perfected. Then notice verses 23, 24. The scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Notice number two, in this perfection of faith, friendship was realized. He was called the friend of God. It's interesting. Uh, I, I grew up in Christian school, and one of the things I always ask you when you grow up in Christian school, when you're a senior... Is they'll they'll want you to have a favorite verse, favorite verse scripture, and um, because we was all you know wasn't real spiritual, most people it was it was you know Philippians four thirteen, right? But which is a wonderful verse, mind you. But for most people, it was either John three sixteen or it was that because most people just didn't know another Bible verse than that because we was raised in Christian school and we was rotten, you know. And uh, but you know. Well, I remember every now and again that somebody would have as their, as their favorite, as their favorite verse, uh, in the book of John, chapter number 15, verse number, uh, 13, whenever, uh, Christ says, you know, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And then he says this, you're my friends if you do whatsoever I've commanded you. And I think people liked that verse because they thought it describes the love of Christ towards us, but it doesn't. See, the truth is, when he died for you, he didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When Christ is speaking in John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this. Well, that's true. But God had a love greater than man ever had. And the love of God was that when we were sinners, he died for us. So when he says greater love hath no man than this, he's saying this is how you can show your love to me. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And then he says this, I don't want you to die for me, I want you to live for me. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I have commanded you. He says, I'm not asking you to go out and die for me. And I understand martyrdom can be the will of God in certain situations. But he's saying, if you want to prove that you love me, I'm not asking you to go die, I'm asking you to live for me. In other words, he's saying, that's how you can be a friend to me. And I'll tell you this, our, our fellowship with God Is not what it ought to be if we are not moved by his commandments. He said this, if you love me, keep my commandments. We can say we love him, but if we won't keep his commandments, it don't mean a thing. James would say, what doth it profit? There's a final illustration he gives, verse 25. He says, likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. This is interesting because here we find faith active, not after a person's salvation, but actually before her salvation. Do you remember what it was that secured her salvation in in that story, in in the book of Joshua, when 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 they're surrounding the walls of Jericho? It was not that she let them go. It wasn't if you let us go, then we will protect you. But rather it was this. If you'll hang that scarlet cord out the window, then it'll be a token and then you'll be spared. So why then does James invoke a prior action to that? Well, here's the big deal. Whenever uh, Rahab let those men go, she was casting her lot in faith with the fact that God would win the day. If she had any doubt whatsoever, that God was going to destroy Jericho. She would have never let those men go. She would have instead called to the, to the authorities and asked them to come and to arrest those men. But the fact that she covered for them and allowed them to escape was her allowing her faith to conquer her fears and her trusting that at the end of the day, God would protect her. In other words, I'd say it this way, that as faith is perfected through our practical application of it in our life, we see not only that faith was perfected and friendship was realized, but we see that fears were vanquished. That as she put to practice her faith, God gave her great peace that he would see to her needs and would watch over her. See, let me just put it real simple and I'll be done. You say, preacher, why, why does my faith have to express itself? Well, it has to express itself because it's how God designed your faith to be. You're not coming to the realization of the faith that God has planned and apportioned providentially for you. Your faith is not perfected unless it's expressing itself in obedience to him. Preacher, why is it a big deal? I can love God without serving him. No, you can't. If you love him, you will live for him. You may know Him and not live for Him. You may be His and not live for Him. But you can't love Him and not live for Him. And then because it's the will of God that as we exercise faith in Him and see His faithfulness displayed in our lives day by day, that that becomes a guiding, governing principle that vanquishes and banishes fear from us and adds unto our faith and allows us to walk by faith in a stronger sense day by day. Let me just say it this simple. Boy, you're missing out a lot if your faith is only speculative. I mean, you're missing what this thing's all about. Uh, you may have placed your faith in Christ and be saved by the grace of God and be as saved as I'll ever be and we may spend eternity in heaven together whether you like it or not, but you're missing, you're missing what this whole Christian life is all about if you're not allowing your faith to affect and change the way that you live. Let's bow together tonight. Musicians gonna come play and the altar's open. I tell you, man, I don't know about you, but in my life, there have been plenty of occasions I believed right. I knew what was right in a broad sense. I was doing right, but I was not allowing my faith to have practical, active output in my life. I wasn't actively trusting him and looking for him to work in my life day by day and by faith walking. Man, I've I've been guilty of that. I bet you have, too. If that's been true in some large measure or small measure in your life, won't you meet the Lord in the altar? Why don't you bring it to Him tonight? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.